Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hanging with History, Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. This is Episode 17, Tudor England, Christian Charity. We started the last episode talking about how Tudor England had a functioning welfare state. That sounds crazy. People weren't rich enough. And what would be the point of it? So, let's explore. And we'll have Banana14 joining us uh, just a bit later in the program. He is a significant musical talent. It's kind of interesting how we have this combination of people with great technical as well as musical skills on the program and in the extended family. First, historians have gone into detailed studies of certain localities, villages, where records survived. Places where we know who was born there, who married who, when, at what age, what children they have, deaths, and what the parishes spend their money on. When you aggregate enough of this data, you can see some surprising results. And again, while you listen, don't be surprised to learn that England is special yet again. Before we go right into some details, let me start with something controversial. Because you never do that. What? Never do controversy? Never say you're going to do one thing and then do another. Oh, I have to do that. I mean, this podcast is about humans, social monkeys, and hobbits. That's what we do. Our knowledge of our own motivations is weak, at times extremely so if you believe the studies. You could say, I can't help my approach. Or you could say, I'm doing a meta-teaching. I could assert one or the other, but you should not believe me. You should form your own judgments after or while listening. All right, that's fine. Money, work, and status. Enough controversy for you? Let's hear what you got. By the time we're talking of the late 15th and early 16th centuries, for Britain and Holland, the elites are fully engaged in improving land, and many are engaged in trade and industry. This is a major contrast with, say, France and Spain, where war and landed estates meant everything, with political administration being the only other acceptable thing for elites to focus their lives on. Louis XIV, for example, recognized this as a problem, something holding his kingdom back, keeping it from improvement as experienced by England and Holland. And everyone noticed that these little countries punched above their weight class on the world stage. Louis had Colbert authorize all nobility to take an interest in ships, goods, and merchandise without being derogated from nobility. First, it's interesting that he had to do that to soothe fears that French nobles would actually be terrified of spending their time on commerce, to such an extent that they would want royal sanction, in addition to thinking it was a good idea. But he couldn't actually change the mental toolboxes of the French nobility in that way, thinking in episode 10 terms here. The universal opinion in France was that nobility was not compatible with commerce. By contrast, wealth could be a source of power and status in England and Holland. Wealth all by itself, a source of honor and status. And let's just admit our revulsion to giving status just to money instead of human qualities. I mean, we do it anyway, but feel there's something shallow about it if shallow is the right word, inappropriate somehow. But you have to give status to people for something. You can't help it. The elephant is in your brain. In France, it's birth. 
who your grandfather was and how many men stand willing to do violence at your command. I can't really be right, though. France had a vibrant urban life, mainly run by non-nobles. Isn't that statue, the Burgers of Calais, one of the most famous statues in the world? It is right, though. John Eltzer's book on France at this time observes that status obsession was also a major feature of life for urban non-nobles. French nobility were also important in cities. And common people may get status through achievement in a Balzac, old Gorio sort of way, but it's far below the aristocracy who could muscle in on anything good going on, like the Mafia. The Burgers of Calais statue by Rodin comes from a time after France had adopted the miracle in the 19th century and looked back on an incident from the Hundred Years' War, just before the Black Death, when France and England were not as different. Giving the highest status to birth is obviously a bad idea. So making wealth, including earned wealth, which generally comes from meeting the needs of others in a market economy, is a big, big improvement over birth and capacity for violence. It gives you a better pool of more talented elites to lead and participate in civic life. In fact, it is a common theme on the podcast. Any step, however imperfect and incomplete, in the right direction will make a society far more formidable in areas like industry, commerce, finance, which leads to more formidable in war-making. And these positive steps are why Britain wins in the wars to come. So let's take a look at a village called Turling, a prosperous little village growing towards a town kind of place in Essex. There we see a shocking story of geographic mobility. From 1580 to 1699, 75% of the men and 66% of the women in Turling, who married there and had at least one child, were baptized in some other parish. This is over a hundred-year time horizon, so it's not just a weird blip. You get similar results in other studies. Lower-class English people left home for better opportunities in a way that did not happen on the continent. This was mobility. This attempted improvement was ordinary. Stop and take in that idea. And this was like 400 years ago? Yeah. And what about other countries? Most people, by far, lived and died a few miles from where they were born. I recall it is different in the United Provinces, but don't have a stat handy. It seems like a huge difference. Pretty colossal. Yes, for ordinary people, it implies more choices in life more responsibility for yourself, more freedom, less oversight, less predictability, maybe less certainty, with more ability to change things you don't like. People got married and lived away from the village where they were born. We can't imagine this suddenly started in the late 16th century when we start having good records. Odds are the practice didn't conveniently begin just when we have records. How long had this mixing and moving been going on? But how could this mobility be? There's nothing like it in France and Germany. Well, one of the responses to the Black Death was to end serfdom. That's different. That's big, right? Even so, didn't people need to stay home to look after elderly parents as in the rest of the world? Well, around this time, analysis reveals that of people in their 60s, 40 to 45% of them were receiving pensions or parish support not support from their children. Now that's an idea. 
if their children cared for them, they wouldn't get parish support, right? Parish support was for a concept called the deserving poor. And the pensions were about equal to ordinary wages for a farm worker, i.e. barely enough to live on, barely. The mean retirement age was 70, and the majority of these were on public support. One of the sources was based on an analysis of 110,000 pension payments. So the richness of the data compared with, say, in our Viking arc is incomparable. One article asserted that a pensioner from 1600 might not recognize much in the modern world, but would likely feel at home with contemporary politics, agonizing, complaining, signaling, and grandstanding over welfare options. The parish most often cared for elderly people whose adult sons and daughters had left. The nuclear family was behind this. Young adults were expected to form their own households wherever they could find work. Sound familiar? It is the same old, same old for the Anglophone world. Same old and more. At the time, it was the prerequisite for sex and child-rearing, so no wonder the impulse to found your own household was so strong. Many children were sent away to work, even children of better-off peasants who were the ones paying for all this welfare, under the practice of, quote, sending out, unquote. And this contributed to extreme geographic mobility. Peter Laslett did some of the pioneering work on this if you want to go deeper. A finer point is that the people who dominated the land did often keep a son at home. The people who were the dominated group, basically everyone 95%, were more likely to move and even slightly more likely to live with their mother's family than their father's. There's also a circularity to the situation. The nuclear family assumptions drive the children to leave and form their own households right? Everyone wants sex. Everyone wants to raise children. That results in the elderly needing more support as they age, and the society, well understanding the underlying causes of the need, provides. There's your charity and kindness. Some folks thought I was wasting time with anthropology on the podcast, but I hope you see now how it helps make sense of the history. It is really surprising to have a system like that so long ago. It's not well known. So how did this work? Well, it was probably common practice in the late medieval times, if not before. By the time the poor laws, capital P, capital L, poor laws, are passed in Elizabeth Tudor's time in the late 16th century, this is enshrining an existing practice. Parliament passed laws, but without an actual means of enforcing laws locally by force. Parishes ran their own welfare systems more or less voluntarily, run by the better-off peasants. And there would be hardships. Sometimes the parish had no money. The particular leadership might be stingy in places at times. The parish also decided if someone deserved to get money or food, a shack or fuel. It was not simply a matter of following bureaucratic rules, so not really a welfare state like we have today. That's an exaggeration. This was more personal, could be capricious, of course, and could not be deficit-financed. So if the parish didn't have the money, they couldn't give support. So you can't think of it like today's welfare structures. You mean if someone on the parish council didn't like you for some reason, then you might not get relief and then just, what, starve? Yeah, that could happen, or freeze to death if they didn't give you fuel, which was probably more common. That would be a good way of getting rid of people you don't want. In books and movies, people get cut off from parish relief all the time. 
But in real life, if people could see you were being a shit to someone without a really good reason, then your reputation would suffer. You would fall in status. So the desire for the good opinion of others acted like a break on that sort of evil. This is where our monkey nature works toward the good, and the data bears this out. For a picture at the national level, kind of if you squint, England was like the way we describe Scandinavia today. Small state with small population, a cohesive culture where everyone more or less agrees with the way things are. The similarities may be in there. There was a culture of deference. The masses did not dispute the authority of the state, nor that of the great landowners. Emmanuel Todd finds that the absence of any value of equality in the family system results in the culture of deference. And there was a kind of duality in society with large farmers mostly following primogeniture, mitigating by trying to get something for younger sons if possible. Below them, free division of property was the practice. We see a surprisingly high number of wills being made, even among the poorest, as mentioned in episode 9. This is interesting. This is very interesting because, among other things, it reveals an implicit trust in local institutions and in the future. That doesn't happen if institutions are not trustworthy and if the future is arbitrarily subject to some higher-up's whim. These wills made by poor people are one of the hard facts, like Viking-era coins, that point us to a historical reality we might otherwise miss. Ooh, did I just tie this idea to the Viking era? Speculative, I know. So, the value of inequality that comes with primogeniture was there, but the freedom to define inheritance at will gave everyone involved the opportunity to follow no rules at all. An anthropologist might not see this as an innovation, but a historian does. Something that brings about a different society. People planned out their lives, but according to their own desires... Well, desires, that's a terrible word for people living a life that we would see as tragically poor with few options. But, to the extent possible, planning life and the passing of assets at death was something under the control of even the poorer people by this time. I don't think we appreciate how free people are at this early stage. We are going to need to remember this when we hit the 17th century. Although I suppose we'll need a reminder because the Reformation arc will be long. And, of course, this freedom comes with a huge responsibility for the self. This could be great. Do what you want. Oh, boy, did you choose badly and make a mess of your life. Paradox and contradiction. Embrace it. Luther will. Cromwell will. Cranmer will. Only probably 30% of poor people were literate, even if it was like three-quarters for the yeoman class. It couldn't have been easy, and we know it wasn't, But this was very different from life on the continent, where few had the option to craft a life and the rules were clearer and less flexible. You can still see this tension today between freedom and responsibility for outcomes on the one hand and the desire for clear, fairer results on the other. I see almost every highly intelligent 10-year-old taking the continental medieval notion as preferable, with that preference falling away as they get older. More mediocre intelligences lock into the medieval notion in the mid-teens, and after that, intellect fades as a determinant, and it's mostly about mood affiliation and social signaling. Hang on there. So it sounds like you just said that people who favor freedom and responsibility 
are smarter than those who want a predictable life. That's incredibly political. I didn't really say that. And I want to stay away from politics. I wouldn't touch it with someone else's 10-foot pole. I keep saying that. What you really did was frame something and then notice it was political. But sometimes what is political moves around. That's what I'm noticing. So let's try to stay objective and remember that objectivity is probably beyond any of us when social monkey nonsense is involved. Okay. I I can go along with that. Anyway, a lot of features of communal life in England would be blown away by the agricultural and industrial revolutions. Though, obviously, we come back to them, even today. And the communitarian impulses just keep coming back. From the Luddites, some of whom had more complex ideas than just breaking machines, to the Spenum land decisions in 1795, specifying minimum wages tied to bread prices. So England, as the birthplace of individualistic capitalism, comes out of this older tradition of local trust and reliable operation of law. And you have to ask, is one really possible without the other? Are they two sides of the same coin? Or is this simply another expression of the idea that love as a dominant principle puts up guardrails we don't easily hop over? Ooh, I just argued that Christian love was an important part of this. Even framing the question is difficult. One listener might be very sensitive to the idea of negative valences with the words individualistic capitalism. Another might hear a trumpet call to the best within us, to use a Randian phrase. It's up to you. But I think we needed this background, a little hobbit grounding before we move on next week into a three-episode arc on the agricultural revolution. Get your wellies ready after Conversations with Cami. And thanks, Banana14, for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. And everyone, please continue to leave your positive reviews on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I really appreciate it. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> this Conversations with Cami is held outside, so you will hear birds and an airplane flying overhead, and you can sort of eavesdrop on what it's like for us having a conversation with several glasses of wine on board. Or if it makes sense, nope. you, you're going to do with it. You they make me sound like a fool or a genius, whatever you friggin' want. That's right. My life is in your hands. <laughs> True. <laughs> my my image, as it will be, is in your hands. Sure, it's been for a while. Yeah, I know. A bit weird. So, Cammy, what do you think of episode seventeen and Banana Fourteen's first debut on the program? I think Banana Fourteen was excellent, and I think you Good should voice. invite in Banana Fourteen back again. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your dad. You just like threw that out as we were listening. Yeah, well, my dad didn't live 400 years ago, obviously. But as a high school student, he was sent out to work on a farm and send money back to the family yeah. to help support his siblings and yeah. his parents. And uh, that was rural Ohio. To me, that doesn't sound so old or exotic or old world it is though that's an anglophone thing to leave your farm leave uh, the estate that you work on and go work somewhere else for money 
taking care of old people 400 years ago, the whole parish giving what basically, I guess, to us in the United States would have the equivalent to Social Security. Yeah, very much. The descriptions reminded me of the seniors I work in day to day that rely on that Social Security and their children have moved away. And one of the things that struck me is 400 years ago, the average retirement age being 70. Oh my goodness. I mean, in that time, the life expectancy was so short. The number of recipients would be small. Well, think about it. The idea was that the money would go to the deserving poor. Because there was so little money, they had to be very careful with it. Because it's not like deficit finance money today where it's just coming from some ill-defined future. We're stealing the money from our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Or maybe, you know, a further future than that. They had to be paid for on a cash-as-you-go basis. The concept was the deserving poor would get the money. The people who deserved it. Which means if you were 67 and still pretty hale and could work, they wanted you to work. And if you couldn't work the whole year, well, you could work part of it. You Maybe you work a little here and there. You would do as much as you can. And if you didn't, well, then, you know, you might not get the, the parish pension. I've met some very inspirational people, the Rosie the Riveters. Oh, yeah. In, in Richmond. In Richmond that I met women who spunky even in their 90s that I had the the pleasure of getting to know their waning years simply ran out of money and needed assistance. Sure. Anything strike you about the idea of love being behind what was going on here? Well, I guess you'd have to define more what, in my mind, you mean by my work. Yeah, love's always an underdefined term. My work in aging services, I sometimes shake my head and, and can't believe why isn't the family helping But love is a strange thing to define. And you can love somebody, but yet have to distance yourself from that person. And that's just something that needs to be, in my mind, respected. Because you don't know the years and years of history involved. Makes sense, yeah. So love is a hard thing to define. Sometimes love means letting go. Well, we're talking about people who are are kind of well-off, putting out the extra pennies that they have, boarding people in their local area, their parish, who don't otherwise have any support, who would freeze to death in the winter or starve to death in the spring. I wish I had a good way to tie together religion and social services and families' involvement in caring for the elders in our community and how sometimes there's these major disconnects and the social services sometimes have to step in and make sure the senior is at least cared for in basic means. In the times you're talking about, 400 years ago, which is very different from now in some ways. But isn't it very surprising but, to you that this was going on 400 years ago? But surprisingly the same. It's just a different social service structure. It's the parish instead of the government. In the government we have now... There's no picking and choosing. Now it's much more just economically based. What's their income? What what programs do they qualify for? The same being the families moved away for that nuclear family to search for a job, which we see here in our day and time now. Totally, yeah. Totally. I I moved away from my family and 
to take that better job. Everyone does. And that leaves that aging person more at the mercy of and dependent on others. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you.